Good morning, Reach Montreal. It's so great that we can actually be together, um, although digitally. Uh, but it's amazing that during this time of isolation and social distancing that we can still leverage technology uh, to experience some form of community, to continue to get around the gospel, to continue to celebrate um, and, and just be together this way. So just so thankful that you're able to join us. And I wanted us to just continue on in some of the things that we've been looking at as a church as many of you know, uh, two weeks ago, we began a series called Money Talks, looking at Jesus and money. And I think it's ironic that in a time like this, with so much social unrest, uh, with COVID-19 taking quite a toll economically uh, to lead to even just global questions around livelihood and uh, uncertainty about jobs and job loss. It's really important that we, as the church, we, as followers of Jesus, consider what our posture should be, how we should be thinking about this, how we should be planning because of this, how, should, how we should be praying. Um, and so it's, it's really important to continue on in this. I'm really excited that next week we, we will be having uh, Jeff Wright join us um, we'll see how he joins us. We'll work that out. But he's going to join us and finish off this series for us and look specifically at hospitality and mission and, that, and its connection to generosity and how the church can be living specifically in a day like today uh, with um, an inability to touch and kind of be together with people. How can we still serve, love, and care for people? So before we jump in to this week's teaching, let me just take a minute and pray for us. Father, we're so thankful that you are a generous God, that you are not stingy with what you've given us, that there's so much about you and your nature and character that yet you are a giver, you are the giver. And so we're just humbled by that. We just pray for us as a church at Reach Montreal that you would just continue to spur us towards obedience, towards generosity, towards a radically different lifestyle that reflects your kingdom, Jesus. So we just invite you into this time together as we open up your word, as we open up our hearts, that spirit, you would push it in to our minds and to our hearts in the ways that you know we need it. We ask all these things in the only name that matters, in Jesus' name, amen. So if you remember last week when we started this series, we looked at how many times the Bible addresses this topic, how many times the Bible touches on wealth and possessions and money and, and what we have. And more than it talks about heaven or hell or prayer or faith, the Bible is getting at this key connection, not just about wealth and possessions and money, but that these things matter because they show us our heart. They show us what matters to us most. And Jesus continues this uh, pattern as he comes and we see that one in four of Jesus' sermons one in four of Jesus' talks, every time he opens his mouth, 25% of the times that he does that, he's addressing money. He's addressing some kind of economic reality, our relationship to things, our relationship to the things that we have been given. Why? Well, because money is about so much more than money. Jesus talks so much about money because, well, money money talks. Money talks about something that's, that's truly Deep, deeper than that. That's truly at the core of what we value. And so Jesus pulls our attention away from just that kind of stuff out here and things that we have towards our motivations and our desires and, and ultimately our deepest treasure. 
I like how the Apostle Paul summarizes Jesus' entire teaching on money. He just does it in a sentence as, as Paul only could. In Acts 20, verse 35, Paul says this, And I have been a constant example of how you can help those in need by working hard. You should remember the words of the Lord Jesus. Here it is, the one sentence. It is more blessed to give than to receive. The Apostle Paul sums up all of Jesus' teachings on money in one sentence, that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, if I'm honest, and if you just kind of think about that, we don't believe that. I know I don't. I know I struggle to believe that that is true. Jesus constantly takes the good life and he turns it upside down. He flips it right on its head and says, no, no, it's not about receiving. It's not about going and getting what you can get. It's actually better to give than to receive. It's actually better to have a posture as a generous giver of what you have, not someone who's benefiting and taking from others. My knee-jerk reaction to that is that Jesus might be right, but it, it just doesn't sound very smart. <laughs> it doesn't sound like the best way to live. It doesn't sound like what I naturally want to do with everything that I have. I read a book recently by an author called John Thornton, and the title of the book is, is awesome because it's Jesus' Terrible Financial Advice. And John Thornton is a financial advisor who uh, met Jesus and it radically changed how he saw money and the portfolios that he was managing and, and how he lived his own life personally. And here's what he writes. If we really believed him, Jesus, about this principle, we'd try as hard to give as we try to receive. But instead, we treat giving to God like a tax, the cost of being a Christian, and like a good citizen, we pay up, but not without looking for loopholes. I think he's getting at something that's really important here, is that Jesus' financial advice not, might not be in line with the normal kind of bend of our heart. And it's definitely not in line with the world's view of how we are to use money and pursue it for ourselves. But recently, there's some very surprising data from social scientists and different experts about the idea of, of giving, the principles of generosity and what it actually does. They've actually shown and proven that generous people are healthier, happier, experience less anxiety and stress. They have higher mental and emotional health and they have better long-term relationships. That generous people actually experience a better life. And so even just for selfish reasons, there's, there's actually reasons to think through, like maybe I should think about being generous. Christian Smith, a sociologist, in his book, The Paradox of Generosity, reflects on this data and he says it well. People rightly say that money can't buy happiness, but money and happiness are still related in a curious way giving it away actually associates with greater happiness. Many North Americans believe that having more money will lead to a proportionate boosting of happiness, although empirical studies show this to be false. 
this data is showing us that literally being a giver, giving what we have away stimulates the pleasure center of our brain. That it touches that same kind of like dopamine, serotonin part that gives us joy when we give, not when we receive. It points us to this amazing truth that God encoded us with this built-in reward system when we give. That we're hardwired to enjoy giving. But so often we find it hard to do. And the message of our culture, and the message of our day, and the message of everything that we're surrounded with day to day is that it's not true. That we're not going to live the good life. That we're not going to live a happy life by being givers, but by those who are go-getters, those who are hustlers, those who are takers. So I want to jump in again this week and look specifically at what Jesus says about giving. What does Jesus actually say about this? Well, if you remember in Matthew 6 last week, when we looked at Jesus' treasure principle... It's very interesting, we didn't have time, and I'm just going to quickly remind us that when Jesus is talking about treasure and your treasure is where your heart is, he kind of, before he gets to the spiritual aspect, before he shows us that actually this is about more than money, it's about your God. It's about who you worship or what you look to for value and purpose and security. He throws in this kind of curious little tidbit in there about the eye. And it's very interesting. And it seems very random. And he throws it in and says like, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, then your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Now what is Jesus doing and why is he talking about our eyes? Well, in the Jewish context of the first century there was a saying about a healthy eye or an unhealthy eye and if you were if you were said to have a healthy eye it means that you had a a healthy outlook a perspective on life but if you had an unhealthy eye then it means that your perspective or your posture towards life was unhealthy that it wasn't leading to life it wasn't leading to flourishing and so Jesus by using the eyes he's pointing out Two perspectives that you and I can have towards everything out there. Everything that we have or everything that we wish we had. The first perspective is is kind of a, a lens of abundance. That we have a posture or a perspective of abundance. Where we see life as a gift. That everything is just a gift from God. And we have a posture of gratitude towards it. And that there's always enough. And there's an abundance of things that we're never going to run out because we're not the ones providing it in the first place. That would be a healthy eye. But an unhealthy eye, the the flip side of that would be a lens of scarcity, a perspective of scarcity, that we live in a world of lack, that the future is, is bleak, and that the present moment requires me to kind of just survive in this overpopulated world and fight to get mind, to just kind of get what I, I need, to see everything that I don't have and go and get it because I, I want it. And so Jesus sets this up to continue what we're going to see this morning and what he's going to say a bit later in Uh, verse 25 of Matthew 6. Watch what Jesus says after this. 
This is why I tell you. So therefore, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. Whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear, isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothes? Look at the lilies, the flowers of the field and how they grow. They don't work. They don't make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory, the king himself was not dressed as beautifully, beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and are thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Why do you trust so little? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat? What will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything you need. This is an amazing passage that I wish we could just kind of unpack for hours. Well, we could because you're in your pajamas probably, but we won't. But there's a few things that Jesus is doing here that are so important. Jesus is pointing out something that is so significant on how we view everything that we've been given. What we spend our time worrying about, Jesus is saying that that points us to what we're trusting in. And if you and I spend so much time worrying about things that are connected to security and provision and comfort, he's telling us that that's actually where we've put our treasure. That's where we've stored up what is truly meaningful to us. And he uses three different categories of things here. He says what we have, what we eat, and what we wear. And most conversations we have today, if if we're honest, I know we think we're very deep people, but most of the conversations we have day to day are really just about what we eat, what we have, and what we want to get. Just like, oh, what 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 restaurant has you have you eaten at lately? Or Oh, look what this new thing I got. I'm going to tell you about it. Or look at my new phone. Or like so many conversations that we have day to day are about these three categories. What we have, what we eat, and what we wear. Every advertisement, every bit of marketing just kind of dangles shiny carrots in front of us for our bodies. Like feed your body, clothe your body, warm your body, treat your body, refresh your body, relax your body, and entertain your body. So Jesus is saying, no, no, you should care for your body. You should care for what you have and, and, and what you have been given and what you want. That, that Those are okay. But he's also saying that true life, that life to the fullest, life that is flourishing, is about so much more than just being alive. We don't live to just be alive. And Jesus is drawing our attention away from those things. And what's very curious is that Jesus says that a certain type of person dwells on this. He says this this kind of thinking dominates the thoughts of unbelievers, he says. Those who don't know God 
don't know him as a generous giver. They're, they're thinking constantly about what they have and what they wear and what they eat because they haven't seen anything more. And Jesus is drawing our attention. He's saying Gentiles and pagans and those that don't see God and know God, they are dominated by these things. Dominated. And all throughout the kingdom ethic in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying, but not so with you. It's different with you. It's different with followers of me. It's different with kingdom people. You know God, so you don't need to run after those things. And all throughout this teaching, Jesus is saying, it's the Father that cares for us. That every good gift, James 1 says, comes from the Father, comes from above. Everything that truly does have eternal value, everything that truly does have a forever value that is embedded in it comes directly from God, not from us working hard to get it. And that changes our posture. Uh, Richard Foster in his book about spiritual discipline says something very, very strong, strong language about this, but so, so true. Listen to what he says about this. Because we lack, as a culture, as a people, a divine center, our need for security has led us into an insane attachment to things. We really must understand that the lust for affluence in contemporary society is psychotic. It is psychotic because it it has completely lost touch with reality. We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we do not want to impress people we do not like. It is time we wake up, awaken to the fact that conformity to a sick society is to be sick. Until we see how unbalanced our culture has become at this point, we will not be able to deal with the mammon, the money spirit within ourselves, nor will we desire Christian simplicity. I think what Richard Foster is doing is he's picking up on Jesus's talk and teaching around an unhealthy eye, that that we've become sick sick in what we see, sick in what we want, that there's a sickness, there's something deep in our heart that has taken over and had us pursue different objects of trust, objects of affection that, again, like we saw last week, they, they over-promise and under-deliver, that, that they're good things, but when they become ultimate things, they become bad things because they aren't God. And in this teaching, Jesus doesn't just kind of say, well, you have an unhealthy eye. He actually takes our eyes and he draws them to what he does want us to see in order for for him to kind of drive it home. Did you notice? Jesus brings our eyes up to the birds and he brings our eyes down to the flowers. Now, it's kind of interesting because in our day-to-day life, we're kind of like, we're just here always. And we're looking at stuff here, our stuff in front of us. But Jesus is going, no, no, don't think and worry about all of this. Let me draw your eyes up to the birds. Let me take your eyes down to the flowers. Why? Because they're not stressed. They're not having sleeping issues. They're not thinking about COVID-19. They're not punching each other in the face for toilet paper. The birds are not uh, hoarding hand sanitizer. I mean, they're not. Maybe if it was the bird flu, 
we'd have a different story. But Jesus is drawing our eyes away from the things that so easily corrupt how we see things. And I think also what Jesus is doing in this key moment is that he's hyperlinking his audience back to the creation story. He's hyperlinking them back to the nature and character of God who is creator. He is the giver. He's not just a giver. That's not just something true about God, that he is the giver, that he's the creator, that all life and all things that are worth our life are given from him directly. And just to remind you in the true story of beginnings in Genesis, we see this beautiful poetic narrative This beautiful flow where there is nothing and then God speaks and gives and makes and then there's something and it's good. There's something, there's this flow over and as the days of creation roll out, as this flow kind of just comes from the words of God, God speaks, he makes, he gives and it's good. God speaks, he makes, he gives, and it's good. And then the narrative is flowing, and you're just kind of, you're wrapped up in that, and it's exciting, and then all of a sudden, there's a dramatic interruption in that flow. There's a dramatic interruption and reversal, and it's quite shocking in the Hebrew, because the words kind of draw you in. And you're looking at this flow and you're going, God speaks and he makes and he gives and it's good. And then all of a sudden, something changes. Watch Genesis 3 verse 6. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree and that it was good, that it was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom that it would give her. So, now here's the word. She took She took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it too. Now there's dramatic interruption in the flow of the narrative here. That human beings are the kind of the crowning jewel of everything that God has given and created. That he's created them as recipients of his giving. And then all of a sudden we see that Eve also sees that what God has made is good. But then she takes. Instead of being a recipient of all that God has given, our first parents take, and then they give to each other. They take instead of being recipients of God who gives. In a dramatic undoing of God's generosity, in the first few pages of human history, we see humanity assume the posture of giver. Takes taking what hasn't been given to them by the giver. See, the deception of sin here, the lie that we see creep in the narrative in the garden is the same lie that creeps into our heart and into our mind and ultimately into our eye. The lie of sin is that we are capable of providing for ourselves. That we are self-made. That we are self-identified. That we can have everything we need without the God who gives us all that we truly have. That's the lie. The lie of the garden is be 
like God by getting yours, by providing for yourself. But the tragic part of that is that we were already made in God's image to be grateful, humble recipients of everything that is good. But instead of being satisfied as recipients of all that is good, that comes from God, this amazing loving giver, Sin enters in by us going and pursuing and taking what we see as good. And that's where everything goes wrong. So sin ultimately comes in and transforms us from being grateful recipients to an entitled provider for ourselves. And sin draws our eyes and our desires and ultimately our heart and life away from what we need to what we think we want. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's giving us a bit of a throwback to Genesis to show us that a healthy eye and a healthy heart are so important to think about, especially when it comes to generosity and giving and receiving. But here's the good news. The flip side of this is that giving and being givers, it does, it's not just a dopamine hit, But that being a giver draws our eyes to know God better. And that is the good news. That God is a giver, that he is the giver. And that the things that have forever value come from him. That everything else is really just going to pass away. But that God as the giver, he's entrusted us with things that we can enjoy because that's what we truly need because he knows. He knows. And scripture repeatedly pairs giving with love. And from the first pages of Genesis, we see that out of God's love, out of God's goodness, out of his nature and character, he does what? He, he gives. I'll share a few examples with you. John 3.16, we know this one. God so loved the world that he what? Gave his only son. That love gives. True love gives. A little bit later in John 14, 15. If you love me, Jesus says to his disciples, keep my commandments. You will give yourself to me if you love me. That you actually give your life to me and entrust it to me and obey me. Romans 5, 8. The Apostle Paul reflects and he says, God demonstrates his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ gave his life for us. There's this key connection between love and And giving, it's impossible to love without giving. But it is possible to give without loving. So motive and posture really matter here. And you and I do and will give ourselves and our lives to what we love. Can't help it, we just will. And Jesus repeatedly pairs these two and draws our attention to the key connection between loving and giving. And says that ultimately how we live and what we give ourselves to show us the object of our trust and love. And Jesus calls his disciples to live radically generous lives. Not just because we should, not just because it's going to impact others, but because it is the natural and necessary overflow of a people who have experienced this God. That it's not possible to experience the generous 
giving God and his love and not also be transformed by that at the deepest level of who we are. The Apostle Paul reminds us of this very well in 2 Corinthians 8, and he says this, I'm not commanding you to do this. He's talking about generosity and principles. He's saying, but I am testing how genuine your love is. How? By comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. The Apostle Paul is writing to churches and he's saying, I'm just, I'm just trying to see how genuine your love is. And what does he look for? How they give. How much they give. Who they give to. And how they're impacting the needy around them. The key here is that God, the giver of all we need, willingly became poor so that we might become rich. And that is the story of all of history. That's the redemptive story and the redemptive arc of the entire Bible. The big idea for us as followers of Jesus is that God always has the intention of changing a people with his radical generosity to then send them out to be radically generous and fight, like fight for justice and fight to mend broken things and broken lives and broken cultures and broken sex ethics, to go out and fight for the needs of the voiceless and the fatherless, and the unborn, and orphans, and widows, and strangers, and outcasts. And to go and give love to those who are feeling unloved. That the Christian life and identity is quite literally the opposite of survival of the fittest. That the natural condition of the human heart is to see what's good for us and take it, just like our first parents to go and get what we need, to go and look out for number one, to hoard toilet paper and hand sanitizer. But not so with you. Because experiencing the generosity of God changes how we see everything. Because it changes how we see ourselves. It changes our posture from being entitled go-getters who need to go and take what we see as good to being humble recipients of God's generosity. And this radical generosity comes out because we're joyful to give it. And it's a response to this. And that's Jesus' point over and over again with the kingdom, the kingdom ethic. Paul Tripp, in his book, uh, Sex and Money, he says it well. Listen to this. You can't properly value this kingdom and go on with the self-centered, money-driven, and thing-oriented way of living that is normal for most people. You can't properly value grace and have your celebration of a pursuit of that grace be relegated to the time that's left in a schedule that is fully booked in pursuit of another kingdom. If you value this treasure properly, it will become the organizing value of your life. This isn't just secondary or extra or for super saints. This is for everyone who sees Jesus and knows him as king. 
every single one of us who has experienced the radical generosity of his love and have, have been rescued and saved by him. So what does this organizing value look like? How does it show up? Well, I just want to close and share a few principles and maybe some best practices for how radical generosity can show up and be displayed. And again, we're going to see more about this next week and we'll have a chance to kind of discuss this as a church. But I just want to share a few principles and best practices. Number one, I think what Jesus is getting at is that we lay up treasures in heaven by stewarding everything God has given us on earth. That we lay up treasures in heaven by getting, taking everything that we have been given on earth and stewarding it. Not owning it, not taking it, but stewarding it by managing it and giving it. Now here's the shift this requires though. It's a radical shift from living our lives as owners and instead living our lives as stewards. Now, to define those two, owners see their life and possessions as belonging to them to be used for their personal enjoyment, whereas stewards see their life and possessions as belonging to God to be used for his purposes and their enjoyment. You see, the key there is that we actually win by living lives as stewards because we manage what God's been given to us, what God has given to us, And then we get to use it for his purpose and still enjoy it because we were created to. God hasn't given you and I what we have. He's entrusted to us what he's given. And that's a key difference. And so this requires a shift for us. Uh, Randy Alcorn in his book, A Treasure Principle, helps us kind of understand stewardship a little bit better by saying it this way. A steward manages assets for the owner's benefit. The steward carries no sense of entitlement to the assets that he manages. It's his job to find out what the owner wants done with his assets and then carry out his will. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. Now that's the difference between stewardship and ownership. Is that really, we're just managers. We're just waiting tables. We're just going and serving people with stuff that isn't even ours in the first place, but it has been entrusted to us. And there's so many passages throughout the New Testament Gospels where Jesus is just fleshing out this idea of stewardship, of faithful stewards or unfaithful stewards, that all of us are stewards whether we think so or not, and all of us will answer for what we've done in managing what God has given. So just think about it for a second. As you think about stewardship and ownership, think about it. What has God entrusted to you? Take inventory of just kind of everything that you do have. Relationships and jobs and talents and careers. Uh, Spaces, your own home, your neighborhood, your workplace, your schools. Your money, your wealth, your possessions, your stuff, your investments. Your time, your, your energy. Just kind of like this, this season of life. How are you stewarding everything that you have right now and using it for God's benefit, for his purpose and your enjoyment? Is that even how you think? Maybe it requires a radical shift in how you think about everything that you have been given. Maybe this is just like an afterthought. 
where first you think, well, okay, well, I got to do this. I got to pay the bills. I got to do this. I got to do this with my time, my schedule, my family, my... But, but, but then maybe after there's leftovers. Well, that's not what a steward does. That's not how a steward thinks. That we have precious resources we've been entrusted with to go and use for God's purposes and for His glory. Number two, think about ways to raise your standard of giving instead of ways to raise your standard of living. Today, everything in our culture encourages us to think through and improve and increase and raise our standard of living. As your salary goes up, so does your standard of living. As your success goes up, so does how much stuff you get to reflect that success. As you move, as you buy a house, as you invest, your life needs to reflect that because your possessions and your stuff need to show that your standard of living is increasing. Now, if we shift away from that and think about our standard of giving instead of our standard of living, it would mean that we're always looking to give more and not less instead of gain more and not less. Some people call this a graduated tithe where the percentage goes up in our giving as our standard of living goes up. As we've been given more, whether it's a a raise or uh, a new job or we're just killing it with our investments or whatever it is that God has blessed us with more, we don't look to, to take more, we look to give more, a graduated tithe. Now, again, I know stats won't change our heart, but it can help change our mind. The Western church is not doing well at this. We are so infatuated with increasing our standard of living that all we've seen in the last several decades is a decrease in our standard of giving. I'll give you a couple of examples of this. One in four church members give zero dollars a year to the local church they belong to. 25% of members not just people who attend, but church members give $0 a year. Over the last few decades, the average giving amongst churches has dropped to 2.6% of the average income. That's actually less than the Great Depression. The Great Depression was at 3.3% giving. So today we are doing worse than those who were giving during the Great Depression. Households who earn more than $75,000 per year are less generous than those who make less than $25,000 a year. Uh, Gen X, our 65 to 1965 to 1980, and Gen Y, millennials, 1981 to 1997, make up the largest segment of our population alive today and are the least generous. So we're not doing well culturally, but we're especially not doing well in the church. Professing evangelicals in North America are quite literally the wealthiest generation of the church's history, yet give less than 4% of their gross income to gospel-related work. So the question remains for us is that where, where, is our, where are we laying up our treasure? Where are we storing it up? Well, by the looks of it, not in heaven. We're storing it up here and for ourselves 
and for our own comfort and for our own convenience and for our own security. And this isn't an, a criticism of us as a church, us at Reach Montreal. Again, I told you last week, we, our giving is going well, we are healthy, but I don't just want health, I want us to excel. I want us to continue to grow in this. Some of us are doing very well. Others of us haven't even started thinking about this. And so it's very important for the whole body to be healthy. Not just a few members kind of towing the line and holding it down for everybody. But for us as a whole church to be pastored well towards radical generosity with all that God has entrusted to us. And third, and finally, look for ways to adjust your lifestyle so that you can give sacrificially and cheerfully. Sacrificially and cheerfully. Now the Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 9, where he's talking about giving. And he says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop back. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully. Paul's doing a couple things here. He's saying that if you don't feel it when we give, in the sense that if you're not feeling it cheerfully, but you're also not feeling it because it's not sacrificial, and it doesn't require any kind of like intentional trimming of your budget or any kind of paring back on your lifestyle, then it's probably not sacrificial. The reality for us, the principle behind this is that you and I don't feel something we don't care about. And we don't give to things that we don't love. So it's not really about the amount that Paul is getting at here, but it's the amount of sacrifice. And Jesus does this over and over again. I think my favorite is in Luke 21 with the widow's offering. When Jesus is actually sitting, watching, looking for people to come and give at the temple, he's watching what they're giving. And the widow shows up and drops two copper coins in. And Jesus' response even though the Pharisees have given far more quantitatively, Jesus' Jesus's response is, this widow has given more than all of them. Why? Well, because she's given sacrificially. Those two copper coins were so much more to her, more valuable to her than anything that anybody else had given that day that Jesus saw. So if we're not feeling it, it's not sacrificial. If it doesn't require our standard of living to be challenged and trimmed and strategically adjusted, then it's not sacrificial giving. So you might be thinking, okay, so the tithe, right? So I'll tithe then. Well, yes and no. The problem with tithing, I think, today as we talk about money and church and generosity and giving is that it really conditions us to think about 10% being God's and 90% being mine. So it's like, okay, I have 90% of my my money, I'm going to do this, and then, oh yeah, I'll give 10% to God. But that's not actually how Jesus talks about tithing, and it's not how the Old Testament talks about tithing either. Jesus actually assumes that everybody is going to tithe. And the word tithe just means a tenth, 10%, that he actually assumes it, that tithing is the bare minimum of somebody that belongs to the people of God. That it's the floor of our giving, not the ceiling. So for some of you, 10% is not near enough. 
Not near enough. It's not sacrificial. It's not cheerful. And for others of you, based on your season of life or your employment situation, 10% is, is way too much. So it's not to become legalistic about the amount, but it is to become um, intentional and thoughtful about the amount of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, scholars actually estimate that the giving of an average household was more like 25% of their gross everything. Because when you took the 10% tithe and then you took the first fruits of the crops and then the festivals and all the other offerings and then the commandment to leave gleaning, kind of the margin of all the crops for the poor, it ends up being about a quarter of everything that any family had that God is saying, listen, turn around and push that out and give it away. Give it to those who don't have what you have. And tithing also is not just about money. It's about everything. It's about margin in our life. It's about what are you rich in? What do you have more of that somebody has less of? How can you be generous and give it away? And last, Paul says cheerfully that God loves a cheerful giver. Why? Well, because he is a cheerful giver. In Genesis, God is the most joyful, cheerful giver of all. Now that sends a ripple throughout all creation and impacts us and calls us to give. So if you are giving to our church or any other cause or ministry grudgingly or out of religious pressure or out of some kind of a performance, if you're not giving cheerfully, it's because somewhere deep down you still believe that what you have belongs to you and is for you. And so this principle is really important to show us that cheerful giving is an expression of worship. That cheerful giving is an, express, an expression and a response to the God who cheerfully gives to us. So just to wrap up, it's so important to think about the church. To think about the church and how the church is called to live. And I'm just so shocked over and over again how often I go back and I read through the book of Acts and I see the early church. Because the first century church was known for its generosity. Not only just its generosity, but its power. Its generosity and its power and influence in their culture. Whereas fast forward to us, in the 21st century, in our Western context, the church is known for having lots of money, lots of building, lots of stuff, but very little power and very little influence in our culture. And so it's so important for us to think about this and to look at the first century church and say, God, how can we continue to reflect the good news of the gospel well? How can we reflect the God who is the giver of all good things? How can we go out and continue to live lives of radical generosity so that people would see you? How can we replicate and mimic the early church because they were so radically transformed by the free gift of grace offered through Jesus Christ? And the good news and maybe the best news in all of this is that if God has our heart, and he has changed us radically deep within. It will flow out into cheerful giving. That we will absolutely look, we will love, we will 
just yearn for opportunities to give. And so let me just encourage you as a church to continue to do that, especially in a season like this. In times where we're not even able to be in close quarters with those maybe who are the most needy, how can we continue to give? How can we continue to give love? How can we continue to give attention and time and energy and our relationships and our gifts and our talents and our money towards things and people that truly will allow us to store up treasure in heaven and reflect the God who is the giver of all good things in the first place. Let me pray for you and for us to that end. Father, we're so thankful that you are a generous God and that you are the giver of all good things. That without you, we truly do have nothing. That we're deceived. That we have an unhealthy eye and an unhealthy perspective. If we think that, that we have earned or went and got and taken anything that we've been given. That, Lord, we aren't even promised the next breath in our lungs. And that that, too, is a gift. So, Father, we rest in that. We humbly receive all of the great things that you have given, that you are the giver, the true giver. And that, Lord, it's impossible to love well without giving well. So I just pray for us, I pray for us individually and for us as a church that you would continue to transform our hearts, that you would kind of just help us shake out of the absurdity that is constantly surrounding us, that we should just kind of live for this and what we have and what we deserve because God, you have so much more in store for us. Change our hearts, change our eyes, change how we live and and how we give so that God, we would make much of you and that people who do not know you would come to know you because of how we love them. We thank you and we just continue to invite you, God, to just come and just smash some of the things that, that we have looked to for comfort and security. Just just rip them out of our hands so that we're left with the only thing that we truly need and that is you, Father. We love you, we worship you, and we give you all the glory and ask that you just continue to show us that you truly are our sustainer and our provider. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.